On the morning of January 30th, 1960, the prisoner did sit-ups in his freezing cell in the east cell block of Ohio State Reformatory. He exercised for hours to keep warm. His regimen had the added benefit of building up his strength. Here, he needed it. In the first few months of a sentence, the prisoner witnessed bloody fights between prisoners, merciless beatings from the guards, inmates leaping from the upper ranges of their cell blocks, unable to face the nightmare any longer. Death was everywhere, but the prisoner endured. Today, however, that rush of heat permeated his body faster than normal. He prayed to God it wasn't fever. A blood-curdling scream rang out through the cell block. The prisoner ran to see the source of the commotion. He gripped the bars of his cell and cried out. They burned like a stovetop. He leapt back, coughing. Foul-smelling smoke poured from the bars of the next cell. Cell 13. His voice was lost in the chorus of prisoners shouting for the guards. Standing in cell 13 was a gaunt man engulfed in flames. His head looked like a jack-o'-lantern. An unsettling smile twisted his lips as his skin blackened and cracked like a hog on a spit. The prisoner's neighbor was burning alive. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, Ohio, a gothic prison once home to the state's most dangerous criminals, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as Parcast's other podcasts on your favorite podcast directory. A triumph of 19th century American architecture, the Romanesque and Gothic-influenced Ohio State Reformatory looks more like a medieval palace than a state penitentiary. Its gray stone towers loom on the edge of the sleepy Rust Belt town of Mansfield, Ohio, like Dracula's castle, its apt nickname. During the Civil War, the site was a training camp for Union soldiers. Construction on the prison began in 1896. It opened 10 years later. The first class of offenders was put to work building the 25-foot wall surrounding the grounds. It felt a little like they were burying themselves alive. Due to soaring costs caused by its ambitious design, the reformatory wasn't completed until 1910. 
the sprawling state-of-the-art prison boasted, among other features, a six-story freestanding steel cell block, the largest in the world, a record it holds to this day. The Ohio State Reformatory was originally intended for young and first-time offenders, but it quickly began housing the state's most dangerous criminals, arsonists, rapists, murderers, you name it. In 1900, inmate Charles Justice helped build its first electric chair, which had recently replaced hanging as the prison system's primary means of execution. While cleaning up the execution chamber one afternoon, Justice noticed the chair's flimsy leather straps and designed metal clamps to secure the inmate more firmly and minimize that pesky little issue of burning flesh. Justice was paroled on good behavior, but later he was convicted of first-degree murder charges and sent back to the reformatory with a death sentence. In a twist of irony, he became the 38th person executed in the chair he helped create. You might say, justice was served. The worst of the worst at the reformatory earned a place in solitary confinement, or as it was more commonly referred to, the hole. Prisoners who spent time in the hole usually learned their lesson, but sometimes, the lesson went too far. There's been a riot at the reformatory, and you're one of 120 inmates rounded up by the guards. Whether you had anything to do with it is beside the point. The warden needs to set an example. You've heard whispers they might send you to the hole, but you laugh it off. There are only 12 cells down there. No way in hell it would fit all of you. A steely-eyed guard jabs your back with his nightstick, hurting you downstairs like cattle. The narrow hallway fills with bodies. It's hot, humid, airless. An unfathomable stink rises from the filthy prisoners. Ahead, you see guards prodding inmates into the cells, packing them away like luggage. Horrible shouts reverberate through the hall. A pair of rough hands forces you inside the nearest cell. It's tiny, made smaller by five inmates already inside. You scramble for the doorway, but a guard pushes you back. Your desperation pushes you to lunge again. This time, the nightstick's blunt response forces you to crumble into a corner. Another inmate enters. Then another. Then another. Soon, ten of you are in there, tighter than sardines. The door swings shut. The bolt locks. It's pitch black. You feel a new cellmate's nervous breath on the back of your neck. Then the squabbling begins, shouting voices all around you. More come muffled through the walls. The guards bang on the door, yelling to keep quiet. No one's listening. Everyone's fighting for space. Sanity. You feel like a farm animal. 
with mounting terror, you realize you're not all going to make it. But you will, damn it. You edge your way to the wall, rest your head, and wait. Minutes turn to hours, turn to days, turn to who knows. Your world is sore legs, sharp elbows, the gnawing pain of an empty stomach, and oppressive, infinite darkness. You're weak. You need some space to sit down. A week later, the doors open. The sullen inmates file quickly out of their cells. Sunken eyes blink in the dim light as guards guide their limp bodies upstairs. You hear a shriek of twisted laughter and watch a writhing prisoner carried out. At least you made it up with your sanity. Last to leave, you're stopped at the doorway by a guard. What's that sound? he asks. You shrug. You don't hear anything. The guard shines his flashlight around the dingy space, halting at the worn-out bunk in the corner. Dark liquid pools beneath. It's blood, draining from the open mouth of a bruised and battered corpse splayed on the mattress like a voodoo doll. The guard steps back in shock, then turns his flashlight on you. At first, you can't answer his rapid-fire questions, but the dried blood on your hands fills in the blanks. The hole was located in the prison basement. The cells were tiny, barren, windowless, festering with vermin. It was sweltering in the summer months, freezing in the winter. Prisoners were fed only meager servings of bread, broth, and water, and had nothing to help pass the time except a well-worn copy of the Gideon Bible. Perhaps it's no surprise that the hole is still a hotbed of paranormal activity. Those exploring its long-abandoned halls feel sharp, jabbing pains, hear hushed, disembodied voices, feel as if they're shoved downstairs when no one else is around, experience cold breath on their necks, and get the sense that someone unseen is watching. The pain and suffering that occurred here has left behind a dark energy that cannot be expunged. Prisoners aren't the only ones who met their fates in the hole. One of the reformatory's better-known spirits is a guard named Frank Hanger. Merrill Chandler listened at the door to his cell as Hanger's slow footsteps paced the hallway outside. The guard would be taking his break any minute. Sure enough, the footsteps stopped, and he heard the faint sound of radio static. Chandler took a deep breath and made his move. He watched Hanger fiddling with the dial. It was nearly impossible to get a working frequency down here. The guard failed to hear slow footsteps creeping out from the cabinet behind him. They came closer, closer. Chandler's shadow fell over Hanger, now adjusting the antenna. 
Chandler almost felt bad for the oblivious guard, but he was the only thing standing in the way of Chandler's freedom. He brought the metal rod down hard on Hanger's skull. Hanger slunk to the floor as Chandler's hands rifled through his uniform, snatching his gun and keys. Hanger squinted up, groping for his things. Chandler hit him again. The guard's face flattened against the cement floor. Chandler ran through the hole opening cells. First was Chester Proboski. Chandler handed his stunned friend the metal rod he'd loosened from his bunk. Watch Hanger, he hissed. My pleasure, answered Proboski, already walking toward the defenseless guard. The blows rained like a monsoon. Hanger tried to scream, but only the sound of gargled blood came out. His skull cracked like an egg. Chandler glanced at Hanger's bludgeoned body and grabbed his friend by the arm. It was time to split. The escapees ran upstairs, but didn't have time to think through their next move. In a matter of minutes, guards surrounded them. Hanger was rushed to the infirmary, where he died of internal bleeding. Chandler and Proboski were convicted and sentenced to the electric chair. On execution day, Chandler and Proboski glowered at the looky-loos gathered to see them meet their maker, Hanger's family, the warden, guards, and someone else. Chandler's eyes widened at the sight of a pale figure at the back of the crowd, standing dutifully by the doorway. Everyone was so concerned with the condemned, no one regarded the man tipping his cap to the final stragglers entering the room. Some even seemed to walk right through him. His odd appearance, however, aroused Chandler's curiosity. The man wore a guard's uniform, but there's no way they'd let someone with a mug like that work here. He had a face like the Elephant Man, swollen and deformed, with clumps of matted hair. Stains covered his clothing. As the executioner watched the seconds tick by in the clock, the killer's time drawing near. The monstrous man turned his pale eyes toward the front of the room. That's when Chandler realized it was Hanger, watching and waiting like everyone else. He squirmed with terror as the executioner threw the switch. Hanger's ghost was the last thing the killers saw before they died. But he wasn't there to frighten them. He was only doing his job. Hanger's spirit guards the hole to this day, protecting visitors from the cruel mischief of the inmates, eternally atoning for his mistake. If an inmate's ghost shoves you, you might feel another set of hands help you on your feet. That's Hanger. He's appeared as an orb of light in visitors' photographs, some have seen him patrolling the cell block in full uniform. He's regarded as courteous and polite, responding well to figures of authority, particularly police officers.
Coming up, we'll explore the administration wing of the Ohio State Reformatory, where a husband and wife both died under mysterious circumstances, nine years apart. Now, back to the story. The Ohio State Reformatory is home to the spirits of many former prisoners, but paranormal activity isn't confined to the old cell blocks. In the early 1930s, Arthur Glatke was a volunteer for Martin Davies' Ohio gubernatorial campaign. Out canvassing the streets of Toledo one day, Arthur met another volunteer who shared his hope for a better future. Not to mention, she was beautiful. Her name was Helen Bauer. Arthur and Helen married shortly after Davy won his campaign. Arthur was appointed warden of the Ohio State Reformatory. The Glatkes packed their bags and moved to Mansfield, setting up house in an elegant apartment in the administration wing, far removed from the harrowing cell blocks. Arthur and Helen's life together was unconventional, but they made it work. Helen gave birth to two boys. She was a dedicated mother. Arthur's job made him increasingly busy, but he was always home for dinner. They made a great team and couldn't imagine life without each other. Or so it seemed. On November 5th, 1950, a lone gunshot pierced the Sunday morning quiet of the administration wing. Arthur listened numbly as prison staff entered the apartment. They found him crouched in the walk-in closet, trembling over Helen's body. Blood oozing all over the turquoise dress she planned to wear to church. The couple clutched hands, a crucifix necklace woven between their fingers, as Helen's eyelids fluttered shut. Arthur's face was wet with tears. The ambulance soon arrived to take her to Mansfield General Hospital, where she died two days later. A tearful Arthur blubbered to police that Helen died from an accidental gunshot wound. Reaching for jewelry in her closet, she knocked another box off the shelf, which contained a 32 caliber semi-automatic that fired into her left lung as it hit the floor. Heartbroken, Arthur blamed himself for concealing the gun. Police accepted the grieving widower's account without much question. But then, things got uncomfortable for Arthur. After putting the boys to bed one night, Arthur sat up late reading notes for a big meeting the next morning. The apartment was silent. All he heard was the faint moan of the wind outside the window. He yawned and looked at his watch. It was close to midnight. He put out his cigar and decided to turn in. As Arthur stood, he heard footsteps coming from the bedroom. Boys? He asked softly. His only answer was the familiar creak of the bathroom door. A chill ran up his spine. He and the boys hadn't used Helen's bathroom since her death. Arthur cautiously approached the door. A woman's voice hummed inside. Arthur thought it might be his old mistress. 
He pushed open the door. Darling, I told you, we're through. His voice trailed off as he realized the bathroom was empty. Arthur threw back the shower curtain, looked out the window, even checked the medicine cabinet. No sign of anyone. He splashed some water on his face. He really needed sleep. As he looked up at his face in the mirror, he caught a glimpse of a figure in the doorway behind him. Helen, holding the gun that killed her. Arthur spun around, but she'd already disappeared. The next morning, the typically gregarious warden acknowledged his secretary with a curt nod and shut his door tight behind him. He took lunch in his office, something he never did. But Arthur wasn't working. After a long and sleepless night, he paced the room like a madman. But this was merely the first painful day of many. Late nights in Arthur's office, the click of her trademark high heels became as regular as clockwork. He'd feel her icy breath in his ear, urging him to confess his crime. Arthur tried to ignore her, but he wasn't the only one who experienced her presence. His secretary mentioned the footsteps as well. Hmm, rats, Arthur would explain nervously. Even his sons claimed to hear their mother's voice humming hymnal songs inside. Her presence comforted them. Arthur, meanwhile, was in hell. One night, he woke to the sound of voices in the hallway. He went outside to find the boy standing trance-like at the bathroom door. A hushed voice inside went quiet. Arthur's sons turned to him with grave expressions. Standing in a patch of blue moonlight, they looked like ghosts themselves. She doesn't like you, father. One uttered with unsettling calm. She knows about the bad things you do. And so the years passed. Arthur hardly slept and grew distant from his children. His life felt like a thin reality. He screamed at empty rooms, pulled his hair and wept on his knees. He begged for forgiveness, begged for just a single night of rest. But still, her presence remained. The voice echoed in the halls. The potent smell of perfume stung his nose. The heels clicked violently against the floor. Her bloody image flickered in mirrors, in windows, in the reflection of the television. Peace and silence. These were concepts he never knew again. And then the day came when Arthur was working alone in his office. The familiar smell of rose perfume wafted through the room and made him nauseous. He was getting old, too old to keep carrying his burden. He looked up. Helen's eyes met his as she crossed the floor to his desk. Then a sharp pain gripped his chest. Arthur's eyes went wide. A devilish smile lit his wife's pale face as she came closer. 
her heels, the only sound he heard. I'll do it! I'll confess! He yelped, doubling over with pain. Helen perched on the desk and stroked Arthur's face with an ice-cold hand. You've suffered enough, she purred. Arthur watched her finger trace down his neck like a dagger. Suddenly, her translucent hand plunged into his chest, as if the layers of flesh and bone were thin air. He shivered helplessly as her frozen fingers closed around his beating heart and squeezed. Arthur's secretary heard the screams first. She ran into the office to find Arthur slumped over his desk, unconscious. He was rushed to Mansfield General, the same hospital where Helen died. According to official records, Helen Gatke died from an accidental gunshot wound in November 1950. Police accepted Arthur's account of her death, though any gun expert would agree it's highly unlikely a pistol could have discharged in the manner Arthur described. Rumors swirled that Helen had uncovered Arthur's extramarital affair, and he'd killed her when she threatened to leave him. Arthur never remarried. In February 1959, he suffered a heart attack in his office and passed away shortly afterward. Whatever happened between them in life, Arthur and Helen seemed to have resolved their differences in death. Visiting their old apartment in the administration wing, you can hear heels walk from the bedroom to the pink bathroom, catch a whiff of rose perfume, feel vertigo and lightheadedness in the walk-in closet where she was shot. But a disembodied male voice has also been reported, and the smell of cigars, Arthur's lifelong vice. The specter of death loomed large at Ohio State Reformatory. By nefarious means or natural causes, over 250 people met their end during its 94 years as a functioning prison. If no one claimed the body of a prisoner, the not-so-dearly-departed was buried in the prison cemetery. Headstones were marked with inmates' numbers rather than names, a grim reminder that no one escaped their sentence. 217 graves still stand there, monuments to the reformatory's cruel past. It's said that restless spirits still roam the cemetery to this day. Somewhere among the headstones lies the body of the most infamous prisoner to stay at, the Ohio State Reformatory. His short life wasn't particularly remarkable, nor the crimes that sent him to prison, but Let's just say he went out in a blaze of glory. His frightening presence has been felt by nearly every visitor to his old cell in the East Block, from paranormal investigators to regular people like you and me. Coming up, we'll investigate the story of James Lockhart, the ghost of Cell 13. Now back to the story. 
little is known about the origins of James Jim Lockhart. In 1955, when he was just 17 years old, he was sentenced to hard time at Ohio State Reformatory. He became known as inmate number 54673. By the mid-1950s, quality of life at the prison had sunk to new lows. Prison overcrowding led to as many as four inmates being confined in a single cell. Violence was rampant. Meals were practically inedible. The building was filthy and vermin-infested. Sickness and disease spread like wildfire. Lockhart endured five long years in the reformatory. No family or friends came to visit. He preferred his own company. He was a loner, kept to himself, kept his head down, his mouth shut. He was an odd duck, invented games to pass the time in his cell, spoke with imaginary friends. The guards didn't like Lockhart talking to himself, but he didn't care. He lost track of things, of time, of reality. Life on the outside faded to a distant memory. Prison became the only reality he knew. An endless cycle, a wheel of oppressed time. Wake up, cold feet, numb fingers, body itching from a scratchy, too short blanket. Walk the echoing halls, inmates shuffle by. Heads down, eyes vacant. Some of them are dead. Lockhart knows this. Every day, he walks with the dead. He sits in the yard, cold feet, numb fingers. Fights break out. This one's throat is slit. That one beaten to a pulp with a soap bar and a sock. They drag the bodies away. They're thrown into an unknown grave. Their blood stays behind and soaks into the soil. Some of them return to walk the halls with Lockhart, heads unstable atop their slit throats, swollen, beaten faces, moaning incomprehensibly. Gray meals, slimy, loose blobs. He tastes the rust of the plate. He tastes something foul and unknown. But he eats. The dead watch him. They smile, they mock him. They say it is fruitless. He will always be hungry, but still he eats. He returns to his cell, cold feet, numb fingers. The prison makes noises from both the living and the dead. This is the time they share together. This is the time both embrace their madness. Sleep comes. The sounds remain. His dreams are the same as his waking life. Cold feet. Numb fingers. The rough blanket scratches his soul. Then the child's laughter comes. It fills the cavernous hall. It hides the dead. Drowns them out. The child comes to him in the dining hall. The child's body is drenched 
But Lockhart recognizes the boy immediately. It is him. The dead version of him. The him whose eyes still held hope. The him whose body was warm. The foul flavor of the food is gone. The rust no longer lingers on his tongue. The child stays by him in the yard. There are no fights, no throat slit, no bludgeoned faces. He returns to his cell. The dead stay silent, but the living continue to shriek. The boy stays with him. He does not speak, but he laughs. He is always wet. He always smells sharp and pungent. The days move faster, but his feet are still cold, his fingers numb. The child shows him the canister. He laughs when Lockhart holds it. He claps his hands with glee when Lockhart brings it back to his cell. Then the child starts to flicker and fade. Lockhart begs. He pleads for the boy to stay. But the child only laughs and claps his hands. He flickers and fades. Flickers and fades. Brighter than dimmer. Brighter than nearly gone. The dead walk again. The foul taste returns to his mouth. When the child is gone, Lockhart knows what he must do. He takes out the hidden canister. The little boy sits on the bunk, little more than a shadow. He laughs and laughs and laughs. Lockhart tips the canister and pours the contents over his head. He is drenched like the child. He wants only to be like the child. The stench of the turpentine is strong and full of energy. Life fills him. Hope fills him. He lights a match and places it in the puddle he sits in. His feet are no longer cold. His fingers have finally thawed. It took the guards over half an hour to respond to the prisoner's shouts. In cell 13, they found James Lockhart burning alive. They tried to splash the flames with water buckets. The guards entered the cell, doused what was left of the flames, grabbed Lockhart roughly by the arms, and dragged out his blackened body, still trailing smoke. Chunks of burnt flesh fell off, like a gruesome breadcrumb trail, as the grim procession moved down the range. A choked scream escaped the scorched remnants of Lockhart's mouth. Then he went quiet. For good. That's one way out of this hellhole, a prisoner jeered, trying to lighten the mood. No one laughed. None of the men would ever forget what they'd witnessed. When no family came for Lockhart's body, he was buried in the prison cemetery with the other nameless dead. You can still find him there, under headstone number 54673. But he's not exactly resting in peace. 
In the years since Lockhart's suicide, visitors to the East Block have experienced an ominous presence, the sense of being watched. They've seen dark shadows patrolling the Fourth Range near Cell 13, or red orbs of light. Visitors have felt pushed, shoved, and scratched by unseen hands. They've heard disembodied voices, or chilling laughter booming through the block. The same presence is sometimes felt near the infirmary, where his body was taken after burning alive. A violent and angry spirit, Lockhart is Ohio State Reformatory's most infamous permanent resident. In the 1980s, former prisoners won a class action lawsuit against Ohio State Reformatory, citing overcrowding and inhumane conditions. It officially ceased operation in December 1990. Prisoners were transferred to the newly built Mansfield Correctional Institute. A few years after its closure, film director Frank Darabont used the striking ruins of the old reformatory as the location for his adaptation of a little-known Stephen King novella. Released in 1994, The Shawshank Redemption was a critical smash, earning seven Oscar nominations. The popularity of the film sent tourists flocking to the old reformatory. In 1995, the newly formed Mansfield Reformatory Preservation Society purchased the property to restore and maintain the building. Today, the reformatory continues to be a popular shooting location for film, TV, and music videos, and has hosted numerous paranormal investigation series. Guides offer daytime tours of the old grounds, but nighttime ghost tours are its most popular draw. Walking through the dark, decaying halls, hearing strange noises echo off the bricks, and feeling the chills of the old building. Anyone can experience occurrences that continue to entice believers in the supernatural. Can the spirits of such a terrible place ever truly rest? Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Some of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by DFW Buckingham. I'm Greg Polson.